This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you on this Saturday, the 6th of May. We are looking at the history of the education of the British monarchy. We're going to talk about where our monarchs have been educated, how they've been educated, what they've been educated in, and the impact that that has had on British society as a whole. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. It is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is Saturday the 6th of May today. It is Coronation Day here in Britain and everywhere that the British royal family are the head of state. So we have been counting down ever since King Charles III became king um, immediately upon the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. We have been counting down to this day when he will be crowned king. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? The fact that um, that he becomes king immediately, and yet the coronation happens so many months later. Because you kind of associate the coronation, the, the, the placing of the crown on the head, with the act of becoming the head of state. Um, when in fact it is just a little bit of symbolism, a little bit of, of pomp and ceremony which we do quite well in this country. Um, but I suppose that's kind of what it's about, isn't it? Is, is finding the small things, finding the rituals in which, as a nation, we can take joy. I came home for lunch um, midweek, I can't remember when, and uh, there was something on the lunchtime, daytime TV, about whether, as British people, we are a miserable nation. Um, I didn't watched the whole thing, didn't listen to the whole thing. But uh, as I've said on the show before, we are the nation with among the fewest public holidays, um, certainly in Europe. And it is quite interesting how we kind of go about our day-to-day lives with as little pomp and ceremony, as little circumstance as possible. And then when things like today, like the coronation come along, so many people take joy in it. It's been nice to watch the uh, the footage this morning of people arriving at the Abbey already. Um, the whole ceremony doesn't even start for another couple of hours, but people have turned up, people are there, there is music, I've got the, um, I've got the footage muted on my TV at the moment, there is music going on, all sorts of things that, um, that people are just taking small joy in, even though for the vast majority of us, the change of monarch has had no impact on our day-to-day lives it is still something that is that is part of the national psyche it is as many people have pointed out making history uh you know this is the first time that we've had a coronation in 70 however many years it is and this is something that future british children will be studying in their history lessons 
this is something that will become part of a curriculum um, in the same way that uh, that we study all about our kings and queens throughout our education. And it's um, it, it's it's nice to be part of it in some small way. And that's why I've chosen today to talk about the educational history of the British royal family to kind of look at how they've been educated through time, how that has evolved and how the British system can look to its royal family in order to figure out what our education system needs. Before we get started on that though, I want to take a quick detour into, into what teaching actually is. Um, <clears throat> because there has been a lot of a lot of chat on Twitter this week after a particular interview that happened uh, here on Teachers Talk Radio earlier in the week. And I just wanted to kind of remind people, put across my view, that as teachers, it is our job to take complex ideas, to take complex images, to take complex structures, and to make them accessible to people. More often than not, those people are younger than us. They are our young people, they are our children. And so we have to make sure that we take these ideas and we make them as accessible as possible to those young people. But we also take very complex ideas and we make them accessible to other teachers. Again, particularly here at Teachers Talk Radio, where the whole point of our existence is to talk to teachers, is to share pedagogy, is to share ideas. And we don't all have the same training. We don't all have the same background. And so it is part of our job as, as your hosts, as trainers, for those of us who are involved in teacher training in any way, to be able to take a lot of the complexity that is involved in pedagogical understanding, that is involved in the metacognitive sciences, and make those things accessible to people who don't have that same background. I don't have a science background. Um, I have a linguistics background. It was, it made me chuckle. Um, when I got my master's degree in applied linguistics, I was offered the choice between an MED or an MSc. Um, so a master's in education or a master's in science. And I took the master's in education because I did not want people to think that I understood science because I don't at all. Um, I kind of now wish that I had because then I could have got another MED and an MA and kind of just had the the triumvirate. Um, but hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Um, and so because I'm not a cognitive scientist, because I, I don't have that complex understanding of neuroscience, but I want to understand because I want to know how the brain works. I want to know how learning works. I rely on people who do understand those things to make it accessible to me. And that means stripping away the scientific jargon. It means stripping away the things that are not actually relevant to what I need to know and giving me the distilled information in a form that I, as a non-specialist, can understand. And I understand why some may argue that that is an anti-intellectualism. I can understand why some people might see that as a dumbing down. I've just done air quotes here in the studio uh, that you, you can't see. But it's not, quite frankly. 
it's not. It's a sign of a good teacher to be able to take concepts that are complex and make them understandable to everybody because knowledge is not to be safeguarded. Knowledge is not to be kept just for the few that some people deem able to understand, that some people deem worthy of understanding. Knowledge is to be shared, particularly amongst our profession. So for me, particularly as I am engaged in my doctorate in education, um, which, by the way, I am just going to... um, to announce here there will be no show next week because I am at university. Um, I've got my next of my doctoral weekends, so no show next week. Please do go back through the archives though and um, and listen to some of our past broadcasts because there are always so many gems that you can listen to. Um, and, and I've been doing a lot of reading, of course, for the doctorate. We've got two assignments due over the next few months, so I've been doing lots and lots of reading. And as I've been writing Uh, particularly the essay that I'm currently writing on research practice. Um, Again, it it occurs to me how part of my job as an educational researcher is to take all of this complicated information, a lot of which I don't understand. I will hold my hands up and say I don't understand it because these are people who have disciplines that are different to mine and figure out a way to make it relevant to me and to my practice to filter it through my own lens and again that's just that is just what we do as professionals that is just what we do as teachers um maxine h has texted in good morning to you lovely to hear from you great point about sharing knowledge thank you thank you i think it can be quite easy um to fall into the idea of protecting knowledge um and, and, and I don't think that people do it with malice. Um, I think it, it can quite often just be a cultural thing that happens. But the way that I see it, having been trained as a social constructivist, and so, you know, many will say that I was indoctrinated into social constructivism, and um, that is an interesting thing that I've been picking apart as part of this assignment I'm writing. Um, I would say that knowledge is constructed, knowledge is is created by sharing, and and it's only really through listening to the insights of other people and filtering their experience, their knowledge through my own experiences and my own knowledge that I can create anything useful. And so I think that the sharing and the, 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 the talking and the reading, it's all vital. It's all vital, not just because knowledge belongs to everybody, not just because all of our young people have the same opportunity to be good at all of our subjects and their interests kind of depict what they are going to to focus on. But also just so that we get better as people. Um, Tim has also texted in. Good morning to you. Tim is a longtime friend of the show. Always lovely to hear from you. We need a national day for the whole UK, an apolitical one that seeks to embrace and celebrate us all. What a lovely idea that would be. What a great idea that is. Um, One of the things I find really interesting is uh, King Charles has deliberately sought other faith leaders outside of Christianity to be part of the the celebrations today and there was kind of a, a, a big 
kick off about that um, when it was announced and people saying, well, you know, one of the king's roles is to be a defender of the faith. It's called the idea that he is the head of the Church of England. And so that's what should be represented. But a, a commentary that I read pointed out that we are a multicultural nation. And yes, the king is the head of the Church of England, but that is not even the only Christian denomination within the UK, let alone the only religion. And as king, he is king of everybody. And so that inclusivity is important. And so what King Charles has done, and I, I like to think this is by design, although I don't know, by including these other faith leaders, he has depicted how important it is to be inclusive, how important it is to, to, to celebrate our differences um, and, and to realise that our differences are the things that make us unique. They are the things that are important, but they also don't, um, they don't divide us unless we let them. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The UK Labour Party will drop its commitment to abolishing university tuition fees according to reports in a range of media outlets. This is seen by some as another reversal of pledges made by leader Sir Keir Starmer when he first became leader. He told BBC Radio outlets that we find ourselves in a different financial situation than when commitments were first made. But he also added that the party was looking at a number of options for reforms to higher education funding. Sakir blamed shifting economic circumstances brought about by the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Student finance was also in the news as financial expert Martin Lewis outlined the three main changes coming in for new university starters in England in September. Mr Lewis was speaking on Good Morning Britain. So-called Plan 5 student loans come into effect in September, but will not affect those already at university. According to Mr Lewis, finance is swinging further away from taxpayer funding and more towards the individual. Those starting uni in September will start repaying student loans once they reach a salary of £25,000 per year, lower than the current threshold. Currently, those with student loans cease repayments after 30 years, even if the debt is uncleared. However, new students will have to pay for 40 years or until the debt is cleared, whichever comes first. This means that graduates could end up repaying loans for their entire working life. In more positive news, the interest on these loans will be lowered from inflation plus 3% to just inflation. In real terms, this means no additional interest. Mr Lewis went on to give detailed examples stating that currently, the taxpayer pays around 44 pence in the pound towards funding and the student pays 56 pence on average. Under the new system, the state will pay 19 pence in the pound and the student 81 pence on average. Statistically, 53% of those in receipt of a student loan are currently likely to pay it off in full. Projections, however, indicate that those in the new system 
only 23% are likely to pay off their loans. Mr Lewis ended by saying that the new system effectively moved payment for higher education from the taxpayer to the student and could be seen as amounting to a graduate tax of 9% on earnings above £25,000 a year. In Wales, schools are being urged to review their uniform to make it cheaper for families according to a report on the BBC website. However, the report also says that the Welsh Government has stopped short of calling for school logos on clothes to be ditched, instead saying they should not be compulsory. Education Minister Jeremy Miles said families should be told about changes before the end of term, but head teachers said they were being asked to consider change at what is already a busy time of year. The request came after a consultation which asked for views on how the uniform cost burden could be eased for families struggling with the cost of living. Families on lower incomes can apply for a Welsh Government grant of up to £300 to help with the cost of uniform, but this hasn't always eased the worry for parents. TES magazine reports on comments made by Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson at last weekend's NAHT conference. In a message to Head, she said Labour will ensure pupils are taught by specialist teachers in each subject. She commented that schools are facing a perfect storm in recruitment and retention in the teaching workforce and that this was forcing more and more schools to rely on non-expert teachers. The Labour Party analysis found that more than one in four physics lessons in the past year has been taught by a non-expert teacher, whilst one in ten maths lessons are taught by a non-expert. It also said research indicated that some teachers were delivering lessons in subjects where they had no relevant post-A-level qualification, including two in three computing teachers and one in four design and technology teachers. The comments did not include any clear detail of how the party plans to tackle individual subject shortages. Staying with the recruitment theme, ITV News posed the question, do Britain schools need more male teachers? after research showed that around one quarter of schools in England don't have a male classroom teacher. Some experts argue that it means young people could miss out on having male role models, although others say it's the quality of the teaching that is important, not the gender of the teacher. The article prompted many to comment that during a recruitment crisis, it was inappropriate to focus on gender rather than skill. This was backed up to an extent by a Channel 4 news piece that focused on National Education Union comments that teachers in England are leaving in droves. The report focused on numbers in the profession after the Department for Education asserted that there are more teachers now than over a decade ago, although they did acknowledge that the need has also grown. The NEU raised the concern that within five years of qualifying, one in three teachers leave the profession. These are figures based on those published by the DfE. This has been a pattern for over a decade. The failure to meet recruitment targets has created further gaps in the workforce. Between 2010 and 2021, vacancies in schools have almost trebled for both full and part-time posts. The programme also featured comparisons of class sizes in England, Scotland and Wales. Smaller class sizes are often seen as a way to reduce workload and therefore could make the profession more attractive. The research shows that Scotland has the lowest average class size amongst the home nations, but the UK compares unfavourably with class sizes internationally, the UK having class sizes above average when compared to Greece, South Korea and Germany. The feature highlights the issue of workload and recruitment as another core aspect of industrial action. 
Finally, to mark the coronation of King Charles III, the DfE announced that it was joining forces with the Eden Project to send thousands of packets of wildflower seeds to primary schools across the country. In an initiative designed to mark the event as well as help children learn about biodiversity, around 40 rugby pitch-sized meadows could be created. The plan was met with enthusiasm by some, although many have criticised the cost of this at a time when funding for schools is so hotly debated. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about revision. Lots of our young people are turning to social media for advice and the hashtag study tips is full on trending. Get me using buzzwords. I am so down with the kids. Anyway, this could be a secret weapon that you could untap simply by being a devoted listener and not skipping past me on Podbean. We all know there are millions of factors that come into play, like sleep, nutrition, hydration, actually being in school and actively participating, but that doesn't matter on social media. And let's face it, any revision beats no revision. So here is what I've found. Read it 10 times, say it 10 times, write it twice. No research quoted, no posh name, just a good idea that our kids are listening to because it isn't being said by their teacher. Yet. Another I found was use flashcards. I mean, why have no teachers ever thought of that? It's okay though, now social media is telling our young people to do it, they will. Just provide cards, writing utensils and a link. One of my favourites, give yourself no other option. Remove all distractions. Switch your phone off and put it in another room. You have no other option but to be incredibly bored or study. Yes, this is a technique that is trending. There are loads of good tips out there, all of which we clearly have never tried to use with our pupils. Let me finish with something nobody has ever thought of. Make a revision calendar. Mind blown. We could have been recommending this for years. There are even newly developed methods with catchy titles like the 2357. No, it's not a new Netflix series. You count backwards from the night before the exam, two days, three days, five days, and seven days, and they are your revision sessions. All of these tips and more have only just been invented, so we seriously need to encourage our young people to get on social media and learn how to revise in the countdown to exam time. As always, if you have a tech question or any revision tips, why not get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Huge shout out to both Joe and Steve, who always give me something to think about as I listen through the news and the two minute tech. There is always something in there from both of them to to either learn or to get on my soapbox about. And I'm going to do both before we get into the nitty gritty of our show today. Um, I think to pick up on what Steve said about um, about social media studying trends. I think it's a good thing to be honest, you know, you look at um, study blur, as it was back in the day, the the people on Tumblr who were posting their study setups. And um, it was all about the aesthetic, but a lot of our kids' lives do revolve around the aesthetic. You know, that is what's trending right now. It is what they are into. Particularly, I've noticed in um, lower key stage three, I've noticed that my year sevens and eights in particular are very much about the aesthetic. And so if they have got these people on social media, I mean, I'm sure they're not on Tumblr anymore. There will be study grams, there will be study talk, I suppose it's going to be. 
But if they have got hashtag revision, hashtag study, trending, and it's it's giving them the same information that we have been giving them for years and years, but in a way that they're actually going to listen to, I am all for that. I am all for that. Because again, as I was saying before the news, I'm not a gatekeeper of education. I, I'm not the teacher that stands up at the front and says the only way that you can learn French is from me. That the only way you will ever be able to conjugate Latin verbs is if you listen to me. That the only way that you will ever be able to read Chinese Hatsa is by copying what I'm doing. Because if I were that teacher, I wouldn't be the teacher that put on YouTube videos. I wouldn't be the teacher that suggested podcasts for them to listen to. Um, None of us are that teacher because we all use these extra media worksheets even are a way of introducing children to concepts that are not of us. And, and I think if we can encourage them to use the social media that they're using anyway in order to improve their revision. So, you know, scroll through their Instagram and yes, it's influencer, 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 then somebody with a nice set of aesthetic notes. And then they get decent tips. I think that's a good thing. I do think we need to be careful because I have noticed this was a trend on YouTube a few years ago. Um, lots of, of videos saying, you know, oh, I got all nines in my GCSEs, here's how you can do it. I got all these stars in my GCSEs, here's how, in my A-levels, here's how you can do it. Um, I do think we need to be wary of those videos and aware of what tips are being presented um, only because those things are aspirational and we have the, the opposite trend of, of a student who is maybe getting fours and fives watching those videos and going, well, I'm never going to be able to do that, so what's the point? But I, I think, you know, we can joke about it, um, but if we can get social media on our side right now to help our students revise, I see, I see no problem with that. Um, I'm also going to pick up something that, um, that came up in the news, which was this idea of, of teachers, not of students not being taught by specialists. Um, now, I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox, but I'm going to point out that expert and specialist are not the same thing at all. Uh, one of the most brilliant teachers I know, uh, he's retiring this year, it's going to be a big loss to the profession. He is an expert in so many things, so many things. He's some, he is someone that I would consider to be a generalist because he knows a lot. His subject is chemistry and not a single person, not a single person would deny his knowledge of chemistry. Not a single person would say, oh, you're a generalist and so you shouldn't be teaching this subject. He, he does have a degree in chemistry. Um, he has higher degrees in chemistry, but those are not the only degrees that he has. He, a few years ago, completed a master's degree in naval history, which is, in my mind, as far removed from chemistry as you can be. But that's something else that he is able to do. And I do think we, we do, because we specialise so early in this country, you know, because we're expecting our kids at 14 to go from a very broad curriculum uh, that they do through key stages, uh, foundation stage, key stage one and key stage two, into key stage three, where they do um, decrease a little bit because we see the arts 
being reduced. We see languages quite often being reduced in Key Stage 3. Then into Key Stage 4, where they reduce their number of subjects again down to their GCSE subjects. And then, of course, into A-level, where they reduce to, to four subjects, maybe five. We, we laud this idea of specialism in this country, and we, we forget that people can be clever. <laughs> we forget that people can know lots of different things. And, and so I am just going to kind of make sure that as, as we have these discussions about who is teaching our children, we don't assume that a piece of paper is the gatekeeper to a knowledge a person has because a person can have degree level knowledge or better in a subject even if they do not have a degree in that subject and and you know i'm all for qualifications i i joked the other day that i don't do a course if it doesn't come with a certificate at the end of it um i did an online course the other day and i'm still quite salty that my certificate has certificate hasn't been emailed through but we need to be careful that we are not saying that the only way you can know something is by having a, a certificate, a piece of paper at the end of it, because what that does is it diminishes the idea of learning for pleasure. And it diminishes the idea that you can be good at more than one thing, which I think does our young people a disservice. And it also does us as teachers a disservice because it stops us from being able to, to explore the whole world of knowledge um, that is out there that we have access to, particularly these days where you know you've got access to me which is lots of knowledge for you um but via the internet we have got access to to the whole world and and i think pigeonholing ourselves just into our specialisms uh, in inverted commas can be can be dangerous can be dangerous but that is my soapbox that is my soapbox let us get on to some history which is not my specialism but it is something that I know about um, because I can read, because I have access to books. I'm very privileged that I have access to books, I have access to the internet, um, and I have the skills to be able to discern information. I want to talk a little bit about, um, about the education of the British royal family through history, um, because I think it touches on lots of different things, lots of different themes that come up quite regularly in educational discourse. Um, it touches on the idea of privilege. It touches on the idea of what it means to be educated. It touches on the idea of specialism, uh, particularly from a very young age. So a lot of the things that we've talked about today, they, they fit in quite nicely. It's almost like I planned it. It's almost like I planned it. Um, education in Britain in general, the history of education in Britain in general is quite an interesting one um, because of the variety of influences that it has had. So before 597, um, British education was influenced by the Roman model. So like so many things, the Romans invaded and they brought their education system with them. Now, generally, um, education in ancient Rome was done within the family. And so the level of education that, that a person received was dependent on what was available to that family. So for some of the richest families, they were able to afford an educated slave who acted as a tutor. In some of the less affluent families, 
the children would learn a trade. They would learn to run the house. The girls would learn to run the house from the mother because it was the role of the of the mother to be in charge of the house's finances, to be in charge of the day-to-day running of what the slaves were doing, uh, to understand where each member of the family was. The boys would go out with their dad. They would learn rhetoric. They would learn how their society worked so that they could maybe achieve the the Roman aspirational um, uh, profession of politician. And that happened for a very, very long time. That happened for a very, very long time. So Roman children and Romano-British children tended to be educated in the classical subjects, in morality, in rhetoric, and for most of them, from a very young age, in a trade. And and I think that's something that does still uh, exist within the British British education system now. Uh, less so in families, although we know that there are homeschooling families. In fact, the very second show that I ever did here on Teachers Talk Radio was with a former homeschooler, uh, my friend Kev. So please do go back and listen to that interview if you are interested in homeschooling and haven't heard it already. It is archived um, here amongst all of the shows that uh, that we have done on a Saturday morning. And it was, of course, the, the ability to function as a citizen at the heart of the education system for the Romans. And, and that has kind of held over into the British system as well. You know, we have citizenship, however it might be, be acronymed in your school. Um, we have these trade routes for, for children who are maybe not interested in following the academic A-level then into university routes. There are alternatives. We have BTECs, we have um, T-levels, we have all sorts of vocational qualifications. So right since its Roman influences, the idea of the academic and the, um, the vocational has been right at the heart of the British system. And I do think that that's one of the things that makes it successful, is that we understand that our young people all have different interests. We understand that our young people all have different competencies. And as much as possible, we try to provide for those. Now, again, there are all sorts of of political things that stop us from being able to fully provide. I've said on the show before that in an ideal world, for me, if a school had a child that wanted to learn something and a teacher that had the knowledge to teach it, then that class should happen. We know that that's not realistic because there isn't money. One of the things that, that is quite often trotted out is an A-level class of one just is not financially viable. Um, and that's a shame. And that is a shame. But we do have many pathways for our young people to take. And I think a lot of that is a holdover from the fact that the Roman system understood that you needed this mix of vocation and academics in order to function at the heart of Roman society. Um, What then started to happen uh, in the Roman Republic, and of course this, as the Romans invaded, was transferred over to us, is, was the establishment of formal schools, uh, but they were all paying. 
because of course the teacher, the philosopher, needed to earn money. So the the first paid teachers came from ancient Rome. This was the point where teachers stopped being educated slaves and started being paid professionals in their own right. Uh, the Romans did educate both boys and girls in this manner. Um, the, the lessons that were taught were different, but boys and girls both were educated. And I think that's really important to remember because quite often when we look at education uh, this far back in the past, we assume that boys were educated and girls weren't because that is kind of the, the stereotype that is passed down to us. But the Romans didn't do that. The education wasn't mixed in all cases. It was in some, but not in all. Um, and so when they separated the children out by gender, they decided what each group would learn, but they were still given the opportunity to be educated. Um, Quintilian, Quintilian, the educator, um, said that it was very important to start education as early as possible. He wrote, uh, memory not only exists in small children, but is especially retentive at that age. And so it was, um, it was very important in Roman society to start being educated as young as possible. Um, generally, they went to school every day except for market days. Um, so the Romans operated a nine day week and day eight was usually market day. So that was kind of the, the day off that the children would get. It would be the, the equivalent of our weekend. I suppose. And the progression of the children depended on their ability rather than their age. So there was this Roman concept of ingenium, which means um, uh, ability to learn, I suppose. And and the idea was, of course, that the, the higher your ingenium, the, the more able you were to learn, the quicker you could progress. Um, but of course, in practice, that didn't always work because a lot of your progression also depended on how much your parents could afford to pay. And so that model, that model existed in Britain um, as part of the, the Roman conquest up until, as I said, up until 597 with the arrival of Augustine of Canterbury. Uh, now, Augustine of Canterbury was a monk who became the first Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, that was in 597. Um, he, he goes by the, the name the Apostle to the English, and he was a founding figure in English Christianity. Um, he also was one of the founding figures, the founding fathers, I suppose, of education in Britain. Um, as we know it today, or at least, I suppose, a founding father of schools in Britain as we know them today. Uh, the earliest known schools that we have in England uh, were connected to the church. Um, so Augustine established um, this church in Canterbury, which became St. Augustine's Abbey, um, and that was in 598. Uh, and attached to the church was a school specifically for studying religious texts. Um, that then was joined by another school in 604, uh, and, and that school is now Rochester Cathedral. And kind of as this, this idea of religious schooling 
became a success, I suppose, as people saw the graduates of these religious schools coming out with their understanding of of the Bible, their understanding of Christianity. Um, it kind of became a trend, I suppose. You know, as much as a, a, a as much as a meme as five ninety eight or six oh four could have, and schools started popping up um, all over England and and then throughout the British Isles. So throughout the seventh and eighth centuries we had this idea of grammar schools which specifically taught latin um other subjects as well but latin was the main focus which is why they were grammar schools um and then there were also song schools where you would train to sing for a cathedral choir so again even right from schooling in the british isles we have this idea that that you follow an academic path or a vocational path. You can learn Latin or you can learn to sing. And, you know, I've kind of been back and forth on this just in the last 40 minutes of the show, because I've talked about how people can be good at lots of different things. And so, you know, is having to choose between academics and vocation the right thing to do? Maybe not for everybody. And you know, specifically then when the only schooling you would get was from the, the pathway that you chose, you did have to make a choice. And that choice would determine how you lived. However, these days, of course, you can take an academic pathway and still learn a vocation. You can take your A-levels and take singing lessons. You can take your T-levels and watch YouTube videos on the Ottoman Empire to expand your knowledge. We're not as not as limited anymore as we used to be. But this idea of academic and vocational has been ingrained in, in British schooling right since the beginning. So we have always had this understanding that uh, that learning isn't just about books. And learning isn't just about what you can do with your hands, but it's both. And you then kind of pick the one that is best suited to you. Uh, during the Middle Ages, then schools were created again specifically to teach latin as a classicist this makes me so happy this makes me so happy because uh, i mean latin is is not in vogue at the moment uh, although it is it is quite interesting how many people particularly young people i have signing up to my latin courses that i offer um, because their schools don't offer it but they want to learn um but I love that Latin has always been at the heart of, of British education. So during the Middle Ages, schools were, were created to teach Latin grammar. Um, and this was specifically to the sons of, of the aristocracy, those who were going into priesthood or into the monastery or into government. So by the Middle Ages, we really were beginning to target the upper classes again, those who had their eye on the top jobs in religion or in government, and, and they were the ones who had the focus. Um, it was during the Middle Ages that two universities were established and they were affiliated with the church. You can probably guess which two universities they are, but in case you are not sure, we have got the University of Oxford and then the University of Cambridge. So they were both established in connection with the church um, to assist in the training of Catholic clergy. During the reign of Edward VI, then, 
um, a reform system of free grammar schools was established. So we no longer needed to pay for education. Edward VI, for those um, who maybe know the Horrible Histories song of the kings and queens of Britain, but are not sure of the dates, Edward VI was uh, 1547 through to 1553. Uh, yes, I did just need to double check that I was right on those dates. Um, dates were there for my strong point in history at school. Um, uh, but they, and they also provided vocational routes towards priesthood. Uh, people who wanted to go into a trade outside of the church did instead an apprenticeship in the same way that apprenticeships exist for our young people today. So for our international audience, it's important for you to know that in Britain now, it is compulsory to be in education toward the age of 18. Um, what kind of education that is, is up to the young person and their family. You can either continue in academic education, so you can do A-levels, advanced levels, um, or you can take a vocational route, which can include an apprenticeship. So we've started now to have all sorts of, of different types of schools in Britain. Um, so we've got these endowed schools. So the schools that are associated specifically with a church or a cathedral. Um, to my knowledge, and, and if I get this wrong, then I, I would appreciate somebody more knowledgeable than me correcting me. To my knowledge, the oldest one is King's School in Canterbury. Um, I believe that was founded in 597 as the Cathedral School. Um, since then, a, the number of endowed schools grew. They became known as public schools in order to differentiate them from the private tutoring that was going on uh, within the rich, fam the, the rich families. And so this is something that, that even I, as a, a native British person who went up through the system, get confused with. The idea that fee-paying schools are the public schools. Um, because these days it seems like it should be the other way around and the public schools should be the ones that are free and open to the public. Uh, but that, um, that moniker comes from when they were the schools that were open to the public. You just had to pay for them. Oh, Maxine, I see that you have just left the show, but you texted in to say that you are enjoying the lesson. I'm glad. I am very glad. I think it's really interesting. Uh, and I kind of wish, I, I've got a bachelor's in education. I did my B.Ed. I kind of wish that we had learned more about this at university, because I think it's nice for us to be aware of, of the tradition that we are in, uh, the tradition that we are a part of. Um, charity schools then became a thing in the 16th century, and that was the purpose of educating poor children specifically. Um, so the ones who couldn't afford to go to the public schools went to the charity schools. And this then is where our modern concept of public schools and state schools comes from. Uh, Tudor England is really where things begin to take off and is where we will begin to talk about the royal family in particular uh, because it was the reforms in the Tudor times that really allowed schooling to flourish, in my opinion.
So Edward VI uh, reorganised his grammar schools, or reorganised the grammar schools that had existed up until that point, and created new ones. He, he created this system of free grammar schools. Theoretically, they were open to everybody because they offered free lessons to those who couldn't afford to pay. However, realistically, families who couldn't afford to send their children to school uh, probably needed their children to go out and work to bring money in. So the, um, the free grammar schools were a great idea and they were a noble purpose, but the practicalities of life in Tudor England kind of didn't, uh, didn't pay out that way. Um, the Protestant Reformation then began to encourage higher literacy rates in England because it was the first time that people were really being encouraged to read and understand the Bible in English. Uh, so the Bible was being given an English translation um, out of Hebrew, Greek and Latin. And of course, being able to be understood by the language of the people, it was called the vernacular um, back then. Uh, people were encouraged to learn to read so that they specifically could read it. Um, and so I think I think this mixing of religion and education in England, in the UK, is, is fascinating. It really is fascinating. Um, even though the Tudor kings and queens were busy setting up schools, they didn't educate their children in schools. The royal family still maintained private tutors. Um, so it was the scholar Erasmus um, and other humanists uh, who were promoting the arts and the sciences over military training for the royal family, particularly the boys, the princes. So up until up until the Tudor period, um, it was expected that the king and the princes, the royal family, would have an, play an active role in the military, as is kind of expected now. The king would quite often be expected to lead battles. Princes would be expected to actively fight within battles. So many um, changing of, of monastic, uh, monastic, of um, monarchy families happened as a result of battles. And so that's what boys were trained in. That's what the, the royal princes were trained in. They were trained in strategy. They were trained in fighting technique. They were trained in, I suppose, perpetuating the crown, really, making sure that they could defend the country against any invaders and making sure that they could defend themselves against anybody else who thought they deserved to be king of England. Um, Henry VIII, good old Henry, he created a palace school for Prince Edward, um, and Prince Edward was educated among uh, or with 14 other sons of very prominent aristocrats. Um, so he was in a nice class of 15 of his peers. Those peers were handpicked by Henry himself. And so again, there is this idea as everything, or as with everything in Tudor England, of, of education being about making connections, about strengthening um, 
family ties. Uh, Alison Weir, the biographer, wrote that the men who were given responsibility to educate Prince Edward were among the most brilliant scholars of their day. I'm just going to say that again. The teachers of Prince Edward were considered among the most brilliant scholars of their day. What has happened in our profession since then that we have gone from the teachers are the most brilliant scholars through to, as Patrick said in the interview last week, that, um, that horrible saying, those who can do, those who can't teach. Something has happened in the, whatever it is, 600 years um, about the perception of teaching as a profession, about the perception of us as, as people. Uh, and we need to figure out where that has gone wrong, I think. But anyway, uh, Edward himself was taught by Dr. Richard Cox, who eventually became provost of Eton and a bishop. Uh, he was educated by John Czech, who was the first uh, Regius profession, uh, Professor of Greek at Cambridge. Um, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, of course, is known for being well educated. Uh, she took lessons with Edward. Uh, and she was eventually tutored by William Grindle and Roger Ashen. Uh, Elizabeth, of course, in addition to English, spoke French, Italian and Latin. And it is well documented that she used these language skills in order to interact with her foreign diplomat diplomats. And she herself is credited with creating a lot of translations of published works over her life. Um, so again, as a linguist, that makes me very happy that it was a prized skill amongst our monarchy to be fluent in many languages. Um, one of the, the most well-known facts about Cleopatra is how many languages she was fluent in. Uh, she grew up speaking Greek. She was the first of her dynasty to learn Egyptian so that she could rule her people in their own language. Languages have always been very important among the upper classes. Quite recently, I've taught students from Russia who always seem to pick French as the language that they want to study. And I asked why, and they said that it's because in Russia, languages are still prized and French is still seen as being quite high class. So there are other countries where languages continue to be, um, to be lauded as important. Just something for my linguists out there to think about. Um, so the royal family continued to be privately tutored by these amazing scholars. Um, it was quite interesting that in 1639, uh, during the outbreak of the bishops' wars, it was said that princes, male and female, spent more time learning to wield pens than swords or guns. Um, that, that was written by the historian Aisha Polnitz. Um, and I think, again, this is quite interesting in the, the change in the role of royalty. This idea that it was important to be learned, it was important to be clever, it was 
it was important for them to understand the strategy. It makes me think of, of Athena, the Greek goddess. Now, we all know that Athena was the goddess of wisdom. What is less known is that she was a goddess of war. And actually, the only reason she was goddess of wisdom is because she was a goddess of battle strategy. And so we can see again this classical influence on early education of the British monarchy, that they had to be trained to understand how to win battles, initially to be able to do it themselves through their own strength, through their own ability to, um, to wield a weapon, and latterly through their ability to strategize, through their ability to um, create diplomatic relations, through their intelligence. Um, it was written that compared to the Spanish royal family, British princes were notably bookish um, in the late Tudor period. Uh, and while it was never expected that the women in the Tudor dynasty would rule, they were still educated. Um, they they still took lessons, even if they were minimal compared to the men in the family. During the Stuart times, this whole uh, concept, this whole idea of the private tutoring continued. Um, Charles I of England was taught by Sir Thomas Murray, and he learned classics, French, Italian, arithmetic, and theology. So again, we are continuing to see this, this idea that the classics and languages and religion and maths to make Rishi happy uh, have been very important in British education for such a long time. He also learned to fence. So we've got very early instances of PE. Uh, he was taught penmanship. So we've got early instances of handwriting lessons. Uh, and he had a librarian. So again, we're seeing within the palace, even though these are private tutors, and again, you know, receiving a better education than anybody who couldn't afford these private tutors would receive. We're seeing a, a focus on the academics with some of the physical, and this idea of being an all-rounder. This idea of understanding classics, and languages, and maths, and theology, and handwriting, so fine motor skills, and having a library to be able to read. You know, we are not specialising. He's having a relatively broad range of, of training. Um, it has been suggested that his education was responsible for the formation of his personality. This is, again, Charles I that we're talking about, um, and his political conduct as England geared up to its civil war. Um, there are commentators who suggest that his education had not taught Charles to be empathetic, uh, which potentially uh, led to the uprisings around him because he wasn't able to see other people's points of view. And so that then is, is quite interesting about this idea of constructing knowledge with other people and interaction with other people in order to learn the life skills of empathy, of sympathy, of, of 
being being a good good person, I suppose. In the 18th century, we began or our royalty began to emulate the French custom of having a governor and a sub-governor um, who eventually became a governess. So we have moved now away from the Roman ideals. France is becoming a huge power player in European politics and the British system is looking at, at the French and going, okay, this is how the French do it, therefore it's good, so that's how we're going to do it. In the same way that the Roman attitude was always, this is how the Greeks do it, so that's good, so that's how we're going to do it. So um, George III had his sons, um, George IV and Frederick, um, educated by, by these governors, and the governors were responsible for disciplining the children uh, and teaching them morals. So they were they were essentially the the pastoral leads, I suppose. And then there was a preceptor and a sub preceptor who taught academics. Um, I have not been able to find a comprehensive list of what those academics were, but I think we can kind of assume that they continued to be the classics. They continued to be language. They continue to be arithmetic. They continue to be theology. All of this stuff that has had a a uh, nice straight line through the British education system. Questions were starting to be asked during this time about exactly what it is a monarch should study. In the British Constitution by uh, Walter Baghot, um, it was concluded that a princely education can be but a poor education and that a royal family will generally have less ability than other families. So it has been concluded that by this time, the royal family were less educated than their poorer counterparts. And this is potentially because the royal family was starting to be educated in royal family affairs. So it was starting to be important that they understood the uh, the constitutional monarchs. They understood what it meant to be a constitutional monarchy because they, of course, have gone from having outright rule, everybody does what I say, to being constrained by the constitution. And they needed to be educated in that. So it was at this point that educating the royal family kind of became a, voc a vocational education. So they were learning more and more about their own history, about their own role, about their own um, place in society, and less about the wider world around them. Um, historians, looking back on it, have been quite interested with the idea of how royal education prepared monarchs for both their political role and their ceremonial role. Uh, Queen Victoria, we're moving now, down now into the Victorian age, she apparently received a good education. Uh, and historians Peter Gordon and Dennis Lawton have said that her education uh, was probably the best 
of any subsequent monarch or heir, uh, which is debatable as we will learn in a minute or two. It has been argued that the educations of George V, of Edward VIII and of George VI were too narrow, which left them with the equivalent education of landed gentry with military connections. That's the quote. Um, and so, again, there was this idea that we've narrowed down now right into a vocational course only. So we have gone from the royalty being the most educated because they could afford the most affluent tutors right down to only understanding their very specific role. Now, you could say that there is nothing wrong with that because there are, of course, certain privileges that are afforded to the royal family that mean they don't need a lot of the education that the rest of us do. Even simple things like the, the Queen, and so I assume that this applies also to King Charles I, the Queen didn't need a driving licence. She was the only person in the British Isles exempt from needing one. I don't know whether Charles has one, I don't know whether he does need one, but again that's a piece of education that they don't need because their status exempted them from needing it. And so, you know, you, you look at the monarchy as an institution, you look at them as a full-time job, and you think, as long as they know how to do their job, maybe that's all they need to know. But of course, there is that difference, isn't there, between needing to know something and wanting to know something. And and looking at looking at George, Edward and George, and thinking about how maybe they were only educated in... Um, affairs of monarchy makes me quite sad that maybe they weren't able, they weren't allowed to pursue their own interests. Um, Edward did briefly go to university at Edinburgh, at Oxford and at Cambridge, uh, but he didn't graduate from any of them. Um, it has been suggested that his time at university didn't do him very much good. Um, and William Ewart Gladstone said that um, when Edward became king, he knew everything except for what is in books. Um, one of Edward's tutors said that he had a weakness of brain, this feebleness and lack of power to grasp almost anything put before him. Um, and a, another tutor said that actually there was no point in him going to university because he couldn't understand the words that he was reading. What's interesting about Edward's case in particular is that his parents, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, they had him evaluated by a phrenologist. Now, phrenology is the science of feeling up the bumps on somebody's head and believing that the, the different lumps and bumps can tell you about them. It was a huge science, um, slightly before the Victorian time. It was, it was very well respected. It had become discredited by the time Queen Victoria was on the throne, but still she had Edward examined by a phrenologist when he was young, and the phrenologist called him um, feeble and abnormal, which meant that throughout Victoria's life, she thought that he was academically incapable. And so I wonder whether his education was deliberately limited 
because it was believed that he was not capable. And that then meant that when he tried to go to university, he didn't have those foundations that he needed to succeed. And I think from that, we can learn a lot about um, the importance of expectations on children. And that if we tell a child, you can't do this, that is more limiting than, than anything that they will put upon themselves. Then we will move into the current royal family. So Queen Elizabeth II, late Queen Elizabeth II, and her sister Margaret, they were the final members of the royal family to be educated by tutors in the traditional way. So that lineage stretched right from Roman Britain all the way through to the 1940s and 1950s. Um, Elizabeth and Margaret, both homeschooled by their governess, uh, Marion Crawford. So again, continuing in the French style. Um, the late Queen Elizabeth was tutored by the provost of Eton College, Henry Martin, and he taught her constitutional history. So again, she was right from her very the beginning of her schooling, um, probably even when it was not suggested that she would become queen because it was her uncle on the throne, she was still being taught about the role of her family in Britain. She spoke fluent French. Uh, she learned that from her governesses, who were all native speakers in French. Uh, famously, as a princess, she joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service. Uh, she took a vehicle maintenance course at Aldershot. Um, and so, you know, she became quite adept at, uh, at, at fixing cars. Um, the historian David Starkey came under some criticism in 2007, where he described the late Queen as being poorly learned. Um, however, it seems that that was his interpretation of her interests. Um, because royal biographer Penny Juno went on to say, uh, the Queen is certainly cultured, even if not that moved by the arts. So it seems that David Starkey was taking the Queen's lack of emotional resonance with the arts, with an inability to understand them. And I have noticed that in circles of intellectualism, there is this idea that certain people determine what makes you clever, what makes you intellectual. And if you don't like those things, they dismiss your academic capabilities. And you can understand something without liking it. And I think that's very important for us as teachers to remember, for us as educated people to remember, and for our children to remember. Um, I was okay at maths in school. Um, it was my weakest subject, but I was decent enough. I didn't like it, but I understood that it was important and I understood that I could do it. And so I did, and, I, and you know, I got my A at GCSE and, and that was absolutely fine. So you can understand things without liking them. You don't need to like everything that you learn. You just need to understand what it's about. Uh, Prince Richard, Duke of Gloucester, 
uh, Elizabeth's cousin, he studied architecture at Magdalen College in Cambridge. Uh, he went on then to do a practical year at the Ministry of Public Building and Works. Uh, he then went on to work as an architect. So again, we have got this vocational training carrying on. Uh, Prince Charles was tutored as a child. Prince Charles, King Charles, I apologise. King Charles was tutored as a child. He then went to Hill House School uh, and then into full-time schooling at the age of eight. He went through public school from the age of 13. He became the first heir to the throne to sit public examinations because he took O-levels when he was 16. He passed six O-levels. Um, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he read history, archaeology and anthropology, and he graduated with a degree in 1970. And that was the first time that a British monarch or heir had completed a degree. So we have charted right from the beginning of the British education system through to our current monarch, who, according to the TV coverage, is getting ready to leave on his, his trip to Westminster Abbey um, for the coronation. And that the, the, I suppose, a roller coaster of what monarchical education in Britain has been, going from being tutored at home like all people under the Roman system, through to being tutored by the best scholars that the country had to offer, so that they could be a leading example to their people, through to being tutored by very intelligent people, but in very narrow domains, through to sitting O-levels and getting degrees, through to sitting GCSEs, A-levels. And of course, we now have a new set of young royals who are in primary school and who will go through the, the system as it currently exists. It's quite interesting to look at the education of the British monarchs, I think, as a history of British education in general, and just to see how we can look to them to understand the trends in British education and to understand what we need to be doing, what we need to be looking at, what we need to be changing. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Okay, I assume that if you have made it this far through the show, you have some kind of interest, either active or vested, um, in the British monarchy. And so with the coronation parade about to leave, we are going to close the show a little bit early so that we can all go and watch and enjoy the festivities. Or if you are not that interested and you have just listened through because you've been interested in the history of the monarchy, thank you for that. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. 
Um, please do stay tuned because we have a lot of fascinating shows, as always, coming up through the weekend. Like I said, I will not be joining you for breakfast next Saturday because uh, I will be at Reading for my next um, doctoral education weekend. Please do take that time to go back through the archives, listen to some of the other amazing shows that we have on offer. Uh, such a variety of voices here talking about a variety of things. It's one of the things that I love most about, about Teachers Talk Radio. And I will see you all in a couple of weeks. Have a great weekend. Have a great bank holiday if you are in a country celebrating a bank holiday this weekend. And I look forward to speaking with you all very, very soon. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.